Well, please uh, turn in your Bibles, if you would, to 1 Samuel chapter 6. And if you would, would you stand for the reading of God's uh, word? The book of Samuel is, in Jewish thought, one of the prophets. These are the early prophets. And uh, this is more than a story. It is preaching. (laughs) It's preaching through a narrative, through what actually took place. Uh, So here, here the message from God. The ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines seven months. And the Philistines called for the priest and the diviners and said, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us, what shall we send it away to its place? And they said, If you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return him a guilt offering. Then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand does not turn away from you. And they said, What is the guilt offering that we shall return to him? And they answered, Five golden tumors and five golden mice, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines. For the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. So you must make images of your tumors and images of your mice that ravage the land and give glory to the God of Israel. Perhaps he will uh, lighten his hand from off you and your gods in your land. Why should you harden your hearts as the Egyptians and Pharaoh hardened their hearts? After he had dealt severely with them, they did not send the people away, and they departed. Now then, take and prepare a new cart and two milk cows, on which there has never come a yoke, and yoke the cows to the cart, but take their calves home away from them. And take the ark of the Lord and place it on the cart, and put a box in it at the side, the figures of gold, which you are returning to him as a guilt offering, then send it off and let it go on its way. And watch, if it goes up on the way to its own land, to Beth Shemesh, then it is he who has done us this great harm. But if not, then we shall know that it is not his hand that struck us. It happened to us by coincidence. The men did so and took two milk cows and yoked them to the cart and shut up their calves at home. And they put the ark of the Lord on the cart and the box with the golden mice and the images of their tumors. And the cows went straight in the direction of Beth along one highway, lowing as they went. And they turned neither to the right nor to the left, and the lords of the Philistines went after them as far as the border of Beth Now the people of Beth were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley, and when they lifted up their eyes and saw the ark, they rejoiced to see it. The cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stopped there. A great stone was there, and they split up the wood of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the box that was beside it, in which were the golden figures, and set them upon the great stone. And the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and sacrificed sacrifices on that day to the Lord. And when the five lords of the Philistines saw it, they returned that day to Ekron. These are the golden tumors that the Philistines returned as a guilt offering to the Lord. 
one for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, and one for Ekron. And the golden mice, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and unwalled villages. The great stone beside which they also set down the ark of the Lord is a witness to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. And he struck some of the men of Beth Shemesh because they looked upon the ark of the Lord. He struck 70 men of them, and the people mourned, because the Lord had struck the people with a great blow. And then the men of Beshemesh said, Who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God, and to whom shall he go up away from us? And so they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath-Yerim, saying, The Philistines have returned the ark of God. Come down and take it up with you. And the men of Kiriath-Yerim came and took up the ark of the Lord and brought it to the house of Abinadab on the hill. And they consecrated his son Eliezer to have charge of the ark of the Lord. As far God's word. Please take your seats. Every human being is made with God-given passions. Now, boys and girls, a passion is something that you love, that you love to do, uh, something uh, that just captures uh, you and brings you great uh, pleasure. Here's what I mean. Um, Wilson Bentley grew up in a farm in Jericho, Vermont, And as a young boy, he developed a fascination with snowflakes. Uh, An obsession would be a better word to describe what it did. Um, Most people go indoors during a snowstorm. But he went outdoors and he captured snowflakes on black velvet. And he became completely intrigued with them. He would stick them under the microscope. And eventually, uh, he would take photographs of them before they melted. He was 20 years old when he took his first photomicrograph of a snowflake. Forty years uh, later, he wrote, Under the microscope, I found that snowflakes were miracles of beauty. And it seemed a shame that this beauty should not be seen and appreciated by others. Every crystal was a masterpiece of design, and no one uh, beauty was ever repeated. When a snowflake melted, that design was forever lost. Just that much beauty was gone without leaving any record behind. He was the first person that we know about who ever took uh, photographs through a microscope of snowflakes. And uh, after 50 years, uh, he published his 5,000 favorite Uh, photographs in a book entitled Snow Crystals. And then he died a manner of death that was really in keeping with and epitomized his life's passion. Uh, Wilson Snowflake Bentley contracted pneumonia in December of 1931 because he walked six miles in a blizzard. And that's how I want to die. I don't want to die of pneumonia, but I want to die pursuing what I love, pursuing what I'm passionate about in life. Discovering and cultivating the passions that God has given you is central to living life to its full. 
And every person shares one common passion, whether they recognize it or not. And that is to glorify God. Now, whether they're religious or not, whether they participate in any spiritual activities or not, every human being has this passion within them to glorify God. We were made to glorify uh, God. And one of the evidences uh, that this is so can be seen in the fact that religion and spirituality are almost universal with all peoples in all places throughout all of human history. But even people who absolutely don't believe any of that still have a hunger for beauty that awakens awe within them. It might be a beautiful piece of music, it might be uh, traveling through the mountains and seeing the glory of the leaves change this time of year, or the wonder of uh, looking out from a mountaintop upon a valley or standing uh, before uh, the ocean. There's something within all human beings that's drawn uh, to all, to the transcendent. And this impulse is actually the desire not only to taste all, but to give glory uh, to God. This passion to give glory to God is intended to be the central hub of our lives. And all the other passions that we uh, might have, they need to be like spokes in the wheel connected uh, to this central glory if they're going to be the life-giving, meaningful expressions that God intends for you. And surprisingly, perhaps, our text this morning is all about the glory of God. And we're going to look at it, there, there are two things in it, and actually both of them are really surprising, as you'll see if you think about it. One is, is that God is going to be glorified in Philistia by uh, people who are pagans. And the second is, is that God insists on being glorified as holy among his own uh, people. And the text reveals what's central, our central choice about whether we will glorify God or not. The most fundamental question uh, that uh, we're going to consider today is whether you will uh, be soft and responsive to God's purpose for your life and glorify him, or whether you will harden yourself uh, to that. So let me pray for us. Uh, Father, uh, today as uh, uh, we look at your word together, uh, we pray that uh, instead of moving away from you and hardening ourselves against you, that we would become softer and embrace this central passion. Pour out your Holy Spirit into our hearts. Give us hearts of flesh instead of hearts of stone. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you weren't here last week, or you haven't uh, uh, been in the book of Samuel uh, before or recently, let me just uh, uh, catch you up to where we are in the book. So the ark had been lost to the Philistines in battle. And the Philistines took it home as a war trophy and put it in the temple of their chief god, Dagon. They were convinced that they had humiliated God, that he was just a, a minor deity, and they held him now as a POW. 
He was a prisoner of war. And they couldn't have been more mistaken. God uh, goes to war first on their God and humiliates uh, their God in his own temple. And uh, then uh, he humiliates the people of Philistia by sending them a plague. And this plague is of such severity and so widespread, it creates a national crisis. People are dying, and no one wants to have the ark around. And here, the outcome of these events is surprising. It is that God is glorified in Philistine. Now, this is how it happens. Seven months have passed with death uh, and tumors. In the five leading uh, cities, a consensus has emerged among the people. Send the ark away. But how? And so they consult the spiritual specialists, uh, their priests and diviners, and they outline a plan. And it's really actually a, a brilliant plan uh, based on their view of spiritual reality and their understanding of what God had done in the Exodus. And there are three things in it that you need to notice. And really, uh, God wants you to see these things in this passage. The first is this, that the way in which the ark is sent back is intended to appease and placate God, the God of Israel. The priests insist that they don't send the ark back empty, but in fact, they send a guilt offering. They have some recognition that they have offended God. And um, if that's the case, they uh, want uh, uh, to make up uh, with him. And uh, they hope in sending it back with these guilt offerings that God will uh, turn away the plague from them. He'll lift his heavy hand off of them. And the second element of this is the particular kind of guilt offering that's brought. Strangely, the priests tell them to fashion five golden tumors and five golden mice. Well, why are they doing this? Well, it's sympathetic magic, or what you might think of as voodoo. These objects in the shape of the tumors and of the vermin uh, are a way of trying to manipulate uh, Israel's God to end the plague. And this is a reflection of really the most fundamental truth about pagan religion and how it contrasts with biblical religion or spirituality. Pagan religion and spirituality, in fact, all other religions other than the religion of the Bible, ultimately are manipulative. They seek in one way or another to get the God or the gods or the spirit or whatever it is that they worship to do your bidding. You try to enlist God by giving certain things or promising certain things or living in a certain way uh, to give you a good life or to get rid of your illnesses or your enemies. But biblical religion is a religion of submission. It's a religion that, of trust that uh, expresses itself in submission uh, to God. And then the third element is here, it's in verses 8 and 9, that the cart is to be unmanned, it's not to have a driver, it's to be unguided, no one's going to walk along with it. And this was a test. 
It was a test to see whether, in fact, the God of Israel had actually been the one uh, bringing all of this trouble to Philistine. Because, and for those of you who weren't raised on a farm, you need to appreciate the details here. These are untrained animals. They are not used to being yoked. And they are, they are cows who have given birth to calves. And the most unnatural thing in the world is to separate a mother from their nursing child. And so these calves would, uh, and cows would not naturally want to be apart from each other. And so they pen the calves, and the cows, if they walk up the road by themselves, well, they'll know that, in fact, uh, this came from uh, God. So what's really stunning here, though, in what is uh, said by the priest is they say to the leaders and the people, give glory to the God of Israel. And then warn them, why harden your hearts? Don't you remember uh, what happened to Egypt and Pharaoh when he hardened his heart? against the God of Israel and refused to let the people go, is, is, Egypt was devastated. How bad does it need to get here before you recognize you need to honor this God? And, and so, uh, uh, with the light that they have, uh, they are telling us something about our most basic choice as human beings that either we will give glory to God, acknowledge him as God, humble ourselves before him and submit to him, or we'll harden ourselves against him and experience judgment. This is, in fact, the ba- one of the basic truths taught in the story of God's deliverance of his people through the Exodus. But it's not just some Old Testament thing. It's something that's taught plainly in the New Testament. In Romans chapter 1, Paul says that the refusal to glorify God, uh, to give thanks to him, to acknowledge that he owns your life, he has a right uh, to say how how it is that uh, you uh, live, uh, that you should be in awe of him. These are expectations God has. And to not give these things to him is to invite sure and certain judgment. Paul, in his letter to the Philippians, uh, says that, in fact, everyone will give glory to God, ultimately. Some will do it gladly. They will bow uh, their knee to the Lord Jesus Christ and confess uh, that he is the King of kings and Lord of lords gladly because it's been the central passion of their lives. And in his presence, uh, uh, they will do this uh, with great joy and zeal. And others will be compelled so that everyone, they will be forced to bend the knee and the words will be pressed out of their mouths. So we need to ask, what are you doing with God? Are you, if you claim Christ as your own, are you growing in this central passion or if other passions really captured uh, your heart? They're really the driving dynamic in your life. Do you daily give thanks to him? 
Uh, do you acknowledge that he owns your life? That he has a right to determine the course of your life? Are you surrendered uh, to his uh, will? Now, do you open your mouth to praise him, not just on Sunday morning, but in the course of the week? Now, next we're told that this plan is embraced and executed, and the narration slows way down. And whenever that happens in a Bible story, instead of a quick summary of what just you were told, it's because you're supposed to pay close attention. And that's because here a miracle is taking place. God is revealing himself through these cows. Maybe you noticed that the cows are lowing. Now, if you didn't study animal science or didn't grow up on a farm, let me explain to you about cows. When cows calve, they make milk uh, for their calves, and they're stored in an udder, and that has to be emptied regularly. And it's painful to the cow if you don't empty that. And these cows are lowing in protest that the Lord God is uh, pulling them to Beth Shemesh instead of back to their cast. He is leading them straight up the road, down into the valley of Sorek to the town named Beth Shemesh. And the lords of the Philistines have been following, kind of hanging back, and when they see that this is happening, they know. And the people of Beth Shemesh rejoice. They are thrilled that the ark has been uh, returned. They have lived with tension and anxiety about what would happen uh, to it, the symbol of God's presence among them. And it's Levites who take it down. And this detail is important. Beth Shemesh is a Levitical town, and so they had a considerable population of Levites who lived there. People stopped harvesting, which is a risky thing uh, to do uh, in, in harvest time. And they took the cow and the carts and they make an offering. It was a a place, the ark, on a great stone, and it was a holy day. This was such an important, momentous day. Everything stopped. And then lastly, we're told that the Philistine lords saw that and they uh, went back. God had revealed his glory to the Philistines. And they, in turn, glorify God. And this is a glimpse of the future. It has always been God's purpose uh, that his glory would be known among the nations. He intends that people from every nation, tribe, and tongue bring glory to him. Paul, writing in the letter to the Ephesians, puts it this way. Writing to those who aren't naturally uh, the people of God, who aren't Jewish, he says, but now in Christ Jesus you were far off, you Gentiles, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. I met Dick Rowe in the last year of his life. Dick was dying from an untreatable form of leukemia, um, He worshiped in the church uh, that I was serving in South Carolina, and eventually he introduced me to his spiritual son, Nard. And this is Nard's story, how it is that Nard came to glorify God. Nard was six years old when this 
a pale, tall uh, man stumbled into his village, uh, Dick, um, in the island, the northern part of uh, the island of Luzon in the Philippines. And the man uh, didn't speak their language. This is, this is, I'm gonna tell this from Nard's perspective. And the elders came out and said, why are you here? And he said, I've come to learn your language and I'd like to write it down and then give you God's word in it. And they asked, who's your God? And he said, he's the God of heaven and earth. He's the creator of the universe and he created you too. And they said, is he powerful? Is he more powerful than the spirits that have controlled our lives and the lives of our ancestors? Is he more powerful uh, than the headhunters? And Dick assured them, yes, he's more powerful. And so hopefully uh, the people in Nard's village began to teach Dick their language. Um, and they did it in the hopes that uh, this God would free them from the oppression of the spirits. Nard was about 13 when Dick needed to return to the States to raise uh, support. But he had completed the Gospel of Mark at that point, and he gave a copy to Nard to read. And Nard eagerly sat down on a stone one day and began to read the Gospel of Mark from beginning uh, to end. And it was in his own heart language, and he said it was as if I was there experiencing uh, the people and the events. And the further I read, he said, the more distressed I felt. A mob of people came out to get Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. What did he do wrong? I read as fast as I could. They accused him of things uh, that he had not done. They mocked him, they spat on him, and then cruelly they made him uh, carry a wooden uh, cross, and then they nailed it to him. And deep down in my heart, I became very angry with God. And I shook my fist. I hate you, God, for being so powerless. Why should I believe in a God that's so powerless, that can't protect his own son? Our headhunters protect us. I don't want a God like that. I want a God who's able to protect me and my family from needing to sacrifice our cows and our pigs and our chickens and our dogs uh, to them. This God didn't even save his own son. And then suddenly, while sitting on that stone, Nard sensed that God was saying to him this. Nard, you don't understand. This is how much I love you, that I gave my son to die for you. And so Nard responded in prayer. He said, if you've loved me that much, then I'll give my life and heart to you. And then he started reading the gospel again. And he finished the gospel. And he read that Jesus was resurrected from the dead. And he said, no one from my tribe had ever come back from the dead. God desires to be glorified. And part of you embracing this central passion of your own life is that you want other people to discover this passion in their lives to glorify God. God has chosen to involve every one of you that knows him in bringing the knowledge of his glorious person to them. He's given, in fact, every one of you has a personal mission field. God has placed you in the lives of other people, near other people who need to hear the message about Jesus Christ and what he's done. You might think that glorifying God is 
just what happens here. But that's not, not the truth. God wants to use you to spread his glory to people who don't know him. And so it's important for each of us to identify and enter into our personal mission fields. Just how do we do this? Well, often where we need to start is we need to pray. Some of us, we need to pray that God would help us see our mission fields and not be so concerned about ourselves. Uh, For God to show us a a few people whom we uh, might get to know well. Perhaps there's some people like that already in your life than than you know well. Then ask God to help you deepen a relationship with that person. Uh, help uh, you to find a way to spend time uh, with that person, to look for an opportunity to perhaps serve that person, uh, to love them in a selfless uh, way. Um, uh, For some of you, it's going to mean slowing down enough to actually notice the people that God's placed in your uh, life. And instead of being so intent on accomplishing what you've set out to do that day, to actually be willing to start a conversation. Because there may be some people that you haven't recognized that God's placed near you, that he actually wants to use you to communicate some part of the gospel to. Now, when you get to this point in the story, what you expect is a happy ending, right? The ark is back, the people, the people are celebrating, and what happens next is 70 people die. That's a little surprising. It's not what you would have expected. And what's going on here is God is insisting that he be glorified as holy. Why do these people die? Well, the priests simply aren't following the regulations God had given them about the ark. They are priests. They should have known better. They should have covered the ark. And people in Beth Shemesh were looking in on the ark in violation of this. And so the people of Beth Shemesh, as they're uh, having 70 funerals, say, who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God? What they're saying is the ark is dangerous, God is dangerous, and we don't want God around. And they do exactly what the Philistines did. They send the ark away. Now, what they probably should have done is the priest should have gotten down on their knees and prayed and started uh, reading uh, uh, what they had of the Old Testament and asking, "Maybe, maybe we haven't done something right here and God's offended. But they didn't do that. They just got rid of it. And and, uh, there's a great irony here that the Philistines are acting with wisdom in what they do um, out of the revelation they have about God. They know they've offended a holy God and they seek to glorify him and they soften their hearts toward him and Israel doesn't. What's going on here? Well, Israel hasn't been worshiping the true God, the God who revealed themselves. In fact, they uh, have been worshiping a graven image. They have imagined God to be a certain way, and when he didn't meet their expectations, uh, uh, they uh, decided they didn't want him around. And we need to pause and ask, might we do something like this? And I think the answer is yes, uh, that in fact uh, we do. That we might try to make God fit our personal or cultural expectations. Or to put it a different way, we try to domesticate God. Uh, Harry Krauss, a missionary uh, physician in East Africa, wrote a book about this. 
And he asks us a series of probing questions, and I just want to ask a few of his uh, to you. You know, if, if, uh, if someone on the outside, someone who didn't know anything about Christianity at all, uh, uh, looked at my life, what would they think of the size and power of the Jesus I claim to follow? Uh, is my profession of faith that Jesus is ever-present and all-powerful and he knows everything, is it, is it really seen in how I approach life, in the expectations I have about my day? If I find myself feeling anxious, what does that uh, reveal about the power of Jesus, the Jesus I serve? Or if I feel the weight of guilt, what does that reveal uh, about what I think was actually accomplished uh, on uh, the cross to bridge the gap between my sin and God's uh, holiness? If I'm lackadaisical about coming to worship, on Sunday. What does that say about my anticipation and desire to be in the presence of God and to hear uh, the Creator speak to me? That's what it is to domesticate uh, God. And the opposite of that is to glorify uh, God. And the New Testament is just filled with statements about what it means. It is a very comprehensive thing to glorify God. Paul writes in uh, the letter to the Corinthians, so whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. And then if you were to do a simple Bible study, just put it in a program and type in the word glory for the New Testament, you would read, I'm not going to read and quote all of the scriptures, but you would read that we uh, glorify God with the use of our bodies. We're to do that. That we glorify God by trusting in his promises, that we glorify a God in our being a generous. Other people glorify God when we're generous uh, with them. We glorify God in how our faith is demonstrated in the midst of our trials. Uh, we glorify God in the way that we live our lives before those who are unbelievers. And it's they, in turn, actually give glory to God uh, because of what they see in us, even though they're hostile uh, toward us. And they, and they think terrible things about us. How we respond in suffering is one of the opportunities for us to glorify uh, God. Let us seek to glorify God and, uh, in everything that we do and say. The Philistines and the Israelites both ask questions here, and they're really the same questions. Who can save us from these mighty gods of Israel, and who is able to stand before God? And the answer to those questions is no one. You know, someone just mouthed it. No one. No one uh, is, is capable of doing this. Um, God is not safe. He cannot be contained. He cannot be used. You cannot manipulate him. And he won't become what you want or imagine him to be. Who is able to stand before this holy God? Well, no one can. But God is acting in this story to create a new future for Israel. The ark is returned. And we've already seen that God raised up a new leader named Samuel. And Samuel would anoint a man after God's own heart who would unite the people of God with the ark of God. And all this looks forward to and anticipates what Jesus has done. In Jesus Christ, the great miracle 
of uh, a sinful people being able uh, to approach and receive the acceptance and embrace of a holy God has taken place. In Jesus Christ, hard hearts are softened. In Jesus Christ, it's possible for us to actually 